My name is Jason, and I'm one of the pastors here. Today we are continuing in the series that we've been in for the last several weeks called Never Enough as we walk through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And one of the questions that this book asks is, what is the meaning of life? Or, or maybe more accurately, is there meaning to life? Woody Allen, the, the famous filmmaker, once said these words, the universe is indifferent And so we create a fake world for ourselves, and we exist within that fake world, a world that in fact means nothing at all when you step back. It is meaningless. But it's important that we create some sense of meaning because no perceptible meaning exists for anybody. No perceptible meaning exists for anybody. Think about that. According to Woody Allen, it is impossible to look around our world and find any meaning in any of it. And so we manufacture these fake worlds for ourselves to try to create some sort of meaning that we can grasp onto. Now, Allen is a filmmaker, and so it's easy for us to say, well, I mean, obviously he does. I mean, he's creating fiction. All of his movies are fiction. But Allen would go beyond that. He's not just talking about filmmakers creating fake worlds. He says we all do it. There are all kinds of things that we spend millions of dollars on and years of our lives on, like entertainment and career and sports and pleasure. And he contends that if you step back from any of those things and look at them with any sort of discerning eye, you will see that none of them really have much meaning at all. The point that Alan is trying to make is that for humans, life is mostly meaningless. And the only shot you have of finding meaning is if you find fake versions of it for yourself. Which is pretty bleak, right? And yet, it doesn't sound all that different from the voice of the teacher, Kohelet, that we have been studying from his words in this Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes over the last several weeks. He, too, looks at the world around him And observes that there is no perceptible meaning for anyone. And so therefore, this book so far has been a little bit depressing, right? I mean, everything is sort of a meaningless vapor. Life is an enigma, a riddle that we can't figure out. Everything under the sun is meaningless. Nature, money, fame, friends, pleasure, homes, music, sex, work, careers. It's all a meaningless vapor. Even wisdom he says, is meaningless. And this is a book of wisdom. (laughs) And he calls wisdom a vapor, hevel. Every aspect of human existence, it would seem, is vanity and futility. And so you might as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. (laughs) This book is sort of like the Eeyore of Bible books. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, these first two chapters of the book have felt a little bit like a downer. But then there's this uptick at the end of chapter 2. He uses these words. The teacher says, So I decided there's nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God for who can eat and enjoy anything apart from him. And you're like, yes, hope. And then he says, this too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. (laughs) And then chapter 3 starts. And the teacher, having looked at all of these other subjects and finding them empty and meaningless and hevel, brings us to the subject of time. 
And given how discouraging and hopeless he's been up until this point, we might anticipate that he's now going to rail on the subject of time like he's railed on every subject up until now, right? Like, time is short. You better hurry up. There's never enough time to do all the meaningless things that make up your meaningless life. Or there's never enough time, so you'd better hurry up. Or he could have talked about the fact that, that time simply adds stress to our already stress-filled lives. As soon as we figured out as a species how to measure time, we began to feel the stress of how little time there was. Thanks, sundial. <laughs> he could have gone that way. And we even kind of expect him to go that way. But he doesn't. Instead, he writes a poem. A poem that many of us have heard all of our lives at weddings and funerals. A poem that, that has been on posters and on greeting cards. A poem that has been turned into pop songs. has inspired countless movies and books and articles and all these other art forms. A poem about the orderliness of time. Let's read Ecclesiastes 3, starting in verse 1. For everything there's a season, a time for every activity under heaven. Let's pause there for just a minute because there's been a shift and it's subtle. But notice, up until now, the teacher has used the phrase, under the sun. I mean, we're only two chapters in, he's already used that phrase, under the sun, six times. And he's going to go on to use that phrase something like 29 times in this book. And every time he uses it, it's a little bit dark. What do we get for all of our toil under the sun? There's nothing new under the sun. Everything I observed is meaningless under the sun. But how does chapter 3 open? Everything under heaven. And under heaven, apparently, there is a time and a season for everything. So let's keep reading and see what under heaven looks like, according to the teacher. Verse 2. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to harvest. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to cry and a time to laugh. A time to grieve and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to turn away. A time to search and a time to quit searching. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear down and a time to mend. A time to be quiet and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Up until this point, the first two chapters have felt a little bit like a stream of consciousness by the teacher, right? He picks a subject, and then he sort of just does a rant on that subject, like work. Oh, let me tell you about work. But now suddenly, in chapter 3, there's a whole new structure, a whole new symmetry, a whole new voice that we're hearing that he hasn't used up until this point. Notice a couple of things. In this poem, I don't know if you can pull that back up again. In this poem, there are 14 pairs that he uses. And I think perhaps that's significant. In, in Hebrew literature, the number seven is the number of perfection, the number of completion. It's the perfect number. So anytime in the Old Testament when you see the number seven, there's a significance that goes beyond sort of a, so how many were there? It's a number that, that implies that now the set is complete. Now the set is perfected. Seven is sort of like the most satisfying of numbers. Well, here we have two sets of seven pairs. It's like it's super completed. It's double perfect. 
And whereas the first two chapters, the teacher is pointed to the randomness of life, the inability to find any order, to make any sense of the world around him, here, under heaven, the teacher is suddenly pointing instead to order. And not just how he organizes his thoughts or organizes his observations, but rather to a divine, heaven-ordained order to every element of life. An order that's even perfect and complete. And the pairs themselves are actually significant. Each pair, you might notice, has sort of these polar opposites. There's love and hate, peace and war, birth and death. This idea of using these polar opposites to describe something is also a very common technique in Jewish teaching and in Hebrew literature. These pairs are called a merism. And it's a technique where listing the parts of something or the poles of something is meant to communicate the whole of that subject. We do it in English as well. When I say lock, stock, and barrel, you know that I mean the whole thing, right? If I say I searched east and west, you don't wonder, why didn't he try north and south? <laughs> you know that I'm communicating, I've searched everywhere, Right? Well, here the teacher is using merisms to communicate an even deeper level of completeness, of perfection, of order. Philip Graham Ryken in his book Ecclesiastes, Why Everything Matters, says it this way. A merism is a figure of speech in which two polarities make up the whole. For instance, when the Bible says God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1, it means that God created everything, the entire universe. Well, here, each pair in Ecclesiastes 3 makes up a larger whole. Together, birth and death comprise the whole of human existence. Weeping and laughing summarize the full range of human emotions, and so on. The teacher is saying that there is order and significance, and perhaps even more importantly, that these order, this order, the significance is heaven-ordained, God-ordained. There is sovereignty in every moment of life. Every experience of life, not just the beautiful, wonderful things we want to embrace, but even the hard things under heaven. By using this sudden shift in writing styles and using these perfect pairs and, and using these merisms, I think the author is communicating something very significant. There's a place to write this down in your notes. Even in this broken world, God is sovereign and there is order under the heavens. And I don't think the author is just saying, you know, he's giving us some kind of hallmark card, some sort of poster with a cat hanging from a line, you know, saying, cheer up, buddy, things will work out, look on the bright side. I think this is more than just every cloud has a silver lining. I think he's saying that under the sun, as we saw in chapters 1 and 2, when we look around this world, there's a lot of really, really hard things. I mean, there are, there are good things too, but for every good season, there's a corollary. For the joy of birth, there's this corollary season of death. For the joy of the embrace, of being held, there is this corollary season of wanting nothing more than to be held, and there's no one to hold you. For every season of dancing, there's a season of grief. He is acknowledging that that's how this world works. But at the same time, I think he's also communicating that somehow God in his sovereignty is present 
is active, is working, holding all of these things together, even if it feels like chaos. Do you remember from our series on Proverbs, Chris talked about sort of level one wisdom and level two wisdom? There's this wisdom that you can get just by looking around the world and observing things. The more stuff you do, the more you learn, right? There's a commercial on TV that says, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. (laughs) That is level one wisdom. And I think the teacher has up until this point been pointing to this level one wisdom. Rather than beginning with God and then looking down and trying to figure out the things of this world through the lens of who God is, Level one wisdom looks around at the world and says, this is what I see. This is the evidence that I can account. And this is how I understand God. And you know what? It can be awfully hard to find any meaning under the sun. That's level one wisdom. That's under the sun wisdom. That is Woody Allen wisdom. But then there's level two wisdom, a wisdom that goes beyond experience. That goes beyond what you can simply learn by observing the world around you. A wisdom that in fact starts with God and who he is and what his plan is and what he has declared. And then seeks to understand the ways of the world through the lens of who God is. It's a matter of perspective in a sense. Not simply of what we see, but the lens through which we see it. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. What do people really get for all their hard work? I've seen the burden that God has placed on us all. Oh, man, we're back to the dark stuff. (laughs) Right? It feels like we're going backwards. Anyway, but the next verse is a verse that I think perhaps is a key that unlocks so much meaning for this whole book. Verse 11. Yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He's planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. There's sort of three separate ideas in that verse. I want to unpack them. Let's look at the the first idea and the third idea first. There's beauty in everything that God is doing. And we can't see everything as God is doing. And it makes us kind of crazy. I think there's a tension, and this tension is sort of what's at the core of this book of Ecclesiastes. There's this sense that God can make beauty out of anything. He could turn beauty into ashes. In the middle of a season of loss, though, it is really hard to see any beauty. It's really hard to see the scope of all that God is doing. So let's go back now to verse 11 and look at that phrase that appeared between The two other phrases, it says, Yet God has made everything beautiful for its time. He has planted eternity in human hearts. I love that phrase, God has planted eternity in human hearts, but what does it mean? I think think it points to our longing, the longing that is the heart of this struggle for us as human beings looking at the world around us. I'll back up. We live in a time-bound world universe. We are slaves to time, and time is completely out of our control. It marches on the sequence events that we occur and occur to us. We live with a constant awareness of time. We live constantly aware of how little time we have, or how much time things take, or how each day takes its toll on us, on our bodies. We live in a time-bound universe, and yet 
Scripture tells us that somehow God is outside of time. That there is this eternity that is outside the bounds, outside of the constraints of time. And God, according to Ecclesiastes, has planted a seed, a kernel of that unbounded eternity into our hearts, into our core. God has planted in every human heart a remnant of the eternity from which and for which we are created. But most of the time, we go about our business, we go about our lives completely unaware of that kernel, of that seed. It's more like a vague sense that there must be more than this. A nagging feeling that there is some greater future that we just haven't found yet. It's like a feeling or a memory. It's almost like trying to remember a dream, but you've woken up and you can't remember any of the details of the dream, but there's this feeling that you have, that you remember of how the dream felt. And this tiny seed of eternity that is in each one of our hearts is what causes us to look at the world around us and feel like this place isn't the way it's supposed to be. This world isn't the way it's supposed to be. And so while we can read this poem that the teacher shares with us, we can celebrate along with the teacher that God has ordered and sustained and holds together this broken world, it's still broken. This is the way the world is, but it's not the way the world was meant to be, created to be. A creation, God declared everything good. This was not a balanced creation of good and evil and forces and yin and yang. Genesis tells us that God created a world that was good. Everything in it was good. There was life, but there was no time for death. There was love, but there was no time for hate. There was dancing, but there was no time for grieving. There was a time for peace and rest and shalom. There was no time for hate and war and longing. The eternity that is written in each of our hearts is a remnant of that world the world for which we were created, a world that has become broken and marred by the fall, a world that is now characterized by death, violence, killing, mourning, separation, hatred, by war, by 70 million people that are displaced. And somehow, their corollary good And it's that tiny seed of eternity in our hearts, in our DNA, in our, in our wiring that compels us to look for that other world, to long for that other world where things aren't the way they are in this. The mid-century author and theologian C.S. Lewis put it this way, if I find myself, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none, of my earth, if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. So is Lewis in this, or Koheleth in Ecclesiastes, the teacher, suggesting that we just need to bear, you know, grin and bear it, just make it through this time-bound age, and then when we die, we can finally be free? I don't think so. 
I think they would both argue that we can experience the real thing, as Lewis point, puts it. We can experience that now in the midst of time, in the midst of our lives, in the midst of the evidence that the world is so broken. So how do we do that? How do we access that? How do we have that perspective, that sort of under heaven perspective in an under the sun world? How do we experience that eternity that God has written into each of our hearts? Well, I think that both Lewis and Ecclesiastes would say that we need to live more fully in the present. There's a place to write that in your notes. We need to live more fully in the present. Lewis goes on to say this, humans live in time, but God destines them for eternity. He therefore, I believe, wants them to attend chiefly to two things. One, to eternity itself, and two, to that point of time which they call the present. For the present is the only point in time that touches eternity. In the present moment, and in it only, humans have an experience analogous to the experience which God has of reality as a whole. Lock, stock, and barrel. In the present experience of eternity alone, freedom and actuality are offered. I love that phrase, for the present is the only point in time that touches eternity. The past is already behind us. It is written history that cannot be undone. And the future is simply a dream. The future has not yet happened. It's all theoretical. It's speculation. It's only in the present that time touches eternity. And it's only in the present that we're able to actually experience life. Everything that's ever happened in history happened in the present, (laughs) right? Nothing can be accomplished outside of the present. It is the only place where we can experience life, actually hear God, actually engage in the good work that God is doing and is prepared in advance for us to do. It's only when we're willing to engage in this present moment before us, no matter what season that is, a season of joy and celebration, of dance, or a season of hardship and grief and isolation. It's only when we are willing to live fully into that present that we are able to see God, to see what God is doing in this world, to get a picture of the broad scope of all that God is doing. This idea of living in the present, this idea of being present to the present, this isn't new. I'm sure many of us have heard it before. It's, it's, it's common now in sort of positive psychology, learning to live in the moment, and yet most of us don't. Why? One author that I read, whose name I don't remember because I should take notes, <laughs> but I don't live in the present, uh, said, <laughs> said there are four thieves of our present eternity. The first is past enjoyment. We tend to live in, in the past, in our past enjoyment, nostalgic for the good old days, back when we were in high school or back when we were in college or back when we could eat whatever we want and not gain weight. <laughs> That's mine. <laughs> back when we had dreams about the future, back when we were in that relationship, back when our marriage was working, back when things were simpler and they made more sense. 
And we get stuck looking backwards at some better time and wishing that the now could be more like then. Longing for things to be the way they were, and it keeps us from living fully in this present. Or else we look at the past, and we're constantly aware of the past regrets, our failures, our disappointment, our past hurts, the opportunities we missed, or the injustices that we experienced in the past that have caused all this pain and this disappointment that we're currently experiencing in our life. And we get stuck living in regret and bitterness and anger and guilt and shame and fear that this past is somehow going to repeat itself over and over again in our lives. We get stuck looking in the past. Or we can get stuck looking into the future, future enjoyment. We live constantly in the future, trying to get through the next day to some better tomorrow, living for the weekend, living for our vacation, living for the day when the kids are finally out of diapers or finally out of preschool or finally out of orchestra because the violin playing is killing us. Or finally out of the home, we live looking forward to some idealized future where it finally all comes together and we get to live the life that we've always wanted to have. Or maybe that future is scary. Maybe we dwell on and get stuck looking into the future and fearing that maybe we aren't going to have enough to actually retire and experience all the things that we want to experience. Or maybe enough to retire at all. We look forward in fear, wondering what will happen if our kids or our grandkids walk away from the faith that we work so hard to build into them. What if all the money we've worked so hard to accumulate all gets squandered? What if our government passes this law or that law? Or what if they don't? These fears for the future that just bind us to time, bind us to fear, and keep us from living in the present moment. These thieves are all reflected in the words of the teacher and all are thieves that keep us from living in the present and trusting in God for the present. The future can steal our present selves just as much as the past can, maybe more. C.S. Lewis says this, the future is of all things the thing least like eternity. It's the most temporal part of time For the past is frozen and no longer flows. And the present is all lit up with eternal rays. I love that. The next moment is as much beyond our grasp and as much in God's care as that of a hundred years away. Care for the next minute is as foolish as care for a day in the next thousand years. In neither can we do anything. In both, God is doing everything. Those words sound idealistic and Pollyanna, right? Because instantly we start thinking, well, yeah, but you need to plan, right? I mean, wisdom says you should plan, right? But they're a lot like the words of Jesus when he said, so don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. So those are the four that this author, whose name I can't remember, lists as the thieves of our present eternity. But I think there's a fifth that I will add, looking at my own life. At least for me, the biggest problem is not necessarily one of these. I'm not able to fully live in my present often because my present is simply too full. I mean, yes, all the past regrets, all the the future dreams and dreads play a role. 
But honestly, I think oftentimes I'm not able to live in the present because I've just got it too jam-packed to actually even be present to it. I think most of the time my biggest thief is busyness. It's all the stuff I put into my life. There's a place to write this in your notes. In order to be able to live in our present, we may need to change our present. And that is very countercultural. We live in a culture that tells us we need to be busy. We need to accomplish more. We need to prove more. We need to get more done, be more productive. And that present may not be a present that we can actually live in most of the time. It's ironic that I was writing this sermon this week when I just had an absolutely bananas week. I, I chaperoned on a trip up to Laurentian. Does anyone know what Laurentian is? Fifth grade trip. And several parents have said something like, you're crazy <laughs> today. Because <laughs> it was fifth grade boys and they were bananas. And I'm trying to write a sermon about living in the present while I'm not able to do anything. And there's no Wi-Fi. And what on earth is this camp about if they don't have Wi-Fi? <laughs> and I'm... I'm driving back on the bus, and I'm towards the front, and my son, Ben, is all the way in the back of the bus, and I've created this little, like, cave where I've put my bag on top of my lap and on top of my coat so I can have my laptop, and I'm trying to type this computer, but we're bouncing. I'm getting more and more angry, and I've got headphones in that are playing jet engine sounds so that I can drown out all the noise of the kids on this bus that are making me crazy. And suddenly, a parent <laughs> taps me on the shoulder and says, your son is yelling from the back. He needs you. And so I start unpiling all of this thing, and I'm, you know, I'm taking all my headphones, and I run back to the bus. I'm like, Ben, what's up? What's going on? He goes, how long have we been driving? I'm super bored. <laughs> and the instant rage <laughs> that I experienced. And so I go back to my desk and I, you know, my man-made desk of coats and bags. And I get my coat out. And I'm reading this. And there was some passage I read that about living in the present and being attentive to what's around you. And I realized I'm so busy writing a sermon right now about living in the present that I'm completely unaware of the 80 kids that are on this bus, and I've been given the opportunity to speak love and life into them. And I'm in my headphones cocoon writing a sermon about living in the present. <laughs> There's an irony there. I think many of us have confused living in the moment with living for the moment, letting the moment dictate what's in our lives. We've filled our days with so many activities and projects and sports and stuff and entertainment and all of this stuff that's really just hevel. Chris, a couple weeks ago, talked about all the things that, this isn't in my notes. Chris, a couple weeks ago, talked about all the things that, were, that the Apostle Paul accomplished in this world, all the ways in which he has shaped culture and shaped Christianity and how the world is a different place because of the work of Paul. And it occurred to me in that moment, I am so glad that the Apostle Paul never had a smartphone. Right? Can you imagine him sitting in prison and he's just kind of like looking through Facebook, you know, and he turns to his buddy and he's like, man, prison stinks, right? And he's like, yeah, man, seriously, you should write a letter. And he's like, mm, I'm good. <laughs> Thank God he didn't have a smartphone. <laughs> but the truth is, our lives are so full of these things that feel so important and so pressing. And if we were able to step back and look at them, we'd realize that most of them are actually pretty meaningless. A lot of them are actually hevel. And there's a freedom in acknowledging that, of taking the pressure off of those things in our lives and realizing, you know what, the stakes are not nearly as high as I think they are if the Vikings win today. They just aren't. Go Vikes. <laughs> but they just aren't. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at this, looking at the ways that we create these sort of fake worlds where we try to find meaning. And look at practical ways that we can restructure our nows, restructure our presence so we can live more fully in that present.
I hope. Chris is writing a note. Maybe that means we'll actually talk about it. <laughs> I'm kidding. How we can reorganize our lives, our presence, in order to be able to actually occupy that space. For me, at least, that space, that present, is so cluttered with hevel that I can't find a place to sit. We invite you to join us. But before we end this time today, I just want to say a couple of things. I have come to love this book of Ecclesiastes in a new way. And I'm so glad that we've been able to spend these weeks and a few more weeks yet looking at this book that gives us such an unvarnished take on the reality that is this world that goes there, that's willing to say, yeah, you know what, there's a lot that's really hard and that doesn't make sense. And we have to try to figure out how does God speak and work and move in this. It's been really good. But it's not the end of this story. It's nowhere near the end of this story. There's another book, a book that appears at the very end of the Bible. And the last two chapters of that book paint a very different picture of this world and more importantly of the world that is to come, where God promises that he'll make a new heaven and a new earth, and there will be no more under the sun because there will be no more sun. There won't need to be because God's presence is among us, and the light of his life will light this new heaven and this new earth. There will be no more under heaven because heaven will have come to this new earth. It promises that there will no longer be a time for tears. There will be no more tears. There will be no more time for death, a time for sickness, a time for pain. Because it promises that all of those things will pass away. There will be no more war because God will bring healing to the nations. And it promises that we will then know and understand all of these things that right now seem to make so little sense in our under the sun perspective. God will live among his people and we will know him. That is the hope that we bring to this present. We can live, as Chris talked about a couple weeks ago, we can live looking at our current tribulations and our current trials as nothing compared to the hope that we have that one day all of this will be new. All of this will be made right in the life to come. Let me pray for us. God, we... We thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways in which you've chosen to reveal yourself to us so that we might understand you and understand this world and understand our role in it. God, we, we pray, God, as you taught us that, that, that your kingdom would come in this earth, that there would be no more under, or under the sun or under heaven, God, but your kingdom would come and your rule and reign would be in this world the way that it is in heaven. God, we pray that you would make that a reality in completion someday, but even now in ways in our lives and in our present. God, we repent of the ways in which we have distracted ourselves. We've allowed ourselves to be some, so out of touch with your eternity. And God, we ask that you would demonstrate to us, show us how we can more closely align our hearts and our minds and our lives to the good work that you have for us in the now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.